Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor. For $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase on NBA tickets, use promo code BSNBA, and there are a ton of good games this week. Who doesn't love the NBA? Go get somebody a Christmas gift early. $20 off, first SeatGeek purchase. Download the SeatGeek app or go right to SeatGeek.com. We're also brought to you by Orby. Wi-Fi is something you don't really think about until you don't have it or it's not working properly, which in my life is often. Videos buffering, Wi-Fi dead zones, everyone's home for the holiday fighting for Wi-Fi. Come on, when did you last upgrade your Wi-Fi at home? If you want better Wi-Fi, check out an Orbi Wi-Fi system from Netgear. Super strong, fast, more reliable, whole home Wi-Fi from your basement to your backyard. Change your Wi-Fi world. Get Orbi, O-R-B-I, Wi-Fi system from Netgear. Visit netgear.com slash O-R-B-I. And we finally, we are brought to you by the Channel 33 podcast, which doesn't just have the big picture with Sean Fennessy and, uh, and jam session with Amanda and Juliet and the press box with Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker. Now on Saturdays, we have best of ringer podcasts for sports and pop culture. If you don't have time to listen to all of our awesome podcasts on the ringer podcast network, all you have to do is go to channel 33 and we put them in a nice little best of package for sports and for culture. Uh, your host is Liz Kelly, and that's what's happening on Channel 33. Subscribe now. Coming up, we're going to talk to Chuck Klosterman about a whole bunch of things. But first, our friends from Pearl Jam. From the mean streets of Portland, Oregon, BS Report slash BS Podcast Hall of Famer, Chuck Klosterman. It's been a while since we have talked on this podcast. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm all right. Streets aren't too mean here. I would not classify these as very mean streets. <laughs> How would you classify pretty them? Pretty friendly streets, I gotta say. Not, uh, not, not, don't seem dangerous. Yeah. You've been in Portland this year. You went from, you were in uh, the New York hustle and bustle for years and years and years. I think you might've been like the third person to buy a place in Brooklyn. Um, and then you stayed no. there forever. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. Uh, 15 years. I was there 15 years. That yeah. does seem like a while, but. And now you're in, now you're in Oregon. You are, uh, yep. You're you're listening to Sirius XM and you're writing in a cabin and you're kind of back to the guy that you were once upon a time in the Dakotas. Well, I didn't have a cabin in North Dakota, but I'm in the cabin now in my surrounded by trees. It's kind of like being in the woods for real. I can relate to a bear. Yeah. <laughs> Has it? What has it done with your writing? Has it made it weirder? Is it exactly the same? Are you more creative? What is it doing for you? Well, hmm. It might be weirder. I guess it's hard to gauge. I mean, you can't. You can't really try to be weird. And a lot of times, what might seem weird to you might not seem weird to someone else, or yeah. vice versa. Um, I, it is just. It's, I kind of like having this separate space that I go to, though. It's like just kind of in my backyard, and but it's not big. It's like eighteen feet by twelve feet, but uh, I put carpet in it, and I painted it, and it's a little fireplace. So, oh wow! Uh, 
just kind of, yeah. Well, it has a, a natural fireplace, but I didn't want to fucking start a fire every time I go out here. So I, I had them put in, like, an electric fireplace so I can just flip a toggle switch and it comes on. But, like, you know, and I can change the color of the flames. Like, today is blue. Sometimes the flames are green. Sometimes they're red, you know. <laughs> this is incredible. I mean... What, what's the weirdest thing about just not being in New York City anymore? I remember when I went from Boston to L.A., which L.A. obviously is a big city as well, but the biggest thing I noticed was I was always like kind of walking around and around people. And when you live in any city, you just see people. There's people all the time. You run into people. They're just kind of in the middle of stuff. And then in L.A., you're in your cars a lot more. And you kind of have to make an effort to see people and be around people. What's the biggest difference in Portland? Well, uh, people have asked me that, and I've kind of given the same answer every time, but it's true. The biggest difference by far is that no one is sarcastic here. And it's it's just very confusing. I mean, the, it's the nicest people I've ever encountered, nicer than North Dakota. Wow. I mean, really sincerely nice people. Um, but there's just... People are not sarcastic. It's very strange. And, you know, like there's there's no sales tax here, but there is kind of a conversation tax when What's you go mean? to the store. What's that mean? Oh, well, you got to stay in and make small talk for a few minutes. They will comment on every item you purchased as it goes over through the machine. And it's, they just, every, you know, they'll be like, oh, oh, or this organic pasta, have you like a, what do you think of this? Well, well, you know, have you tried this? I haven't tried it. And I'm like, well, I don't know. It was about four and a half feet up on your shelf, <laughs> which was where my arm was. Right. And then they'll be sort of perplexed by that response. And then they realize, oh, what he's just saying is I didn't consider this at all. I just grabbed it. You know, <laughs> that's like I, I didn't really think of that. Um, so that that's different. But uh um, you know, it rains all the time now, so I, I like that. I like when it rains, and uh, my kids love it. My wife loves it. It's kind of a just, just a just a different life. But you're, it's it's true. Everything about me seems different. Like I just, I listen to Sirius XM radio constantly now. It has replaced the internet for me. So explain that to me. What what are you listening to on Sirius XM? I listen to it. I listen to everything. I listen to okay. The main channel I listen to is Aussie's Boneyard which is kind of like it's like an Ozzy Osbourne, I guess, branded station. So it's like classic rock from the 70s and 80s, but only hard rock. Mm. I listen to uh, the Vegas Sports Network all the time, like Brent Musburger's show. I listen to that all the time. <laughs> Seriously? Um, is that a good show? Should I be listening to it? I didn't even, I didn't even know that. There is. Because those guys, those guys know about like what's happening with like Tulane or East Carolina, the way, you know, guys on ESPN know about Alabama. Like, they know everything about everything because they're actually putting real money into play, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's just, and they say it's like all the, like all the news that impacts the gambler, but like all news apparently affects the gambler. Like yeah. any sports news is part of this conversation. So I listen to, I listen to the Beatles channel quite a bit. Um, that's more diverse than I thought it would be. I listened to Volume, the, like the all-talk music channel, which seemed like a crazy idea because music is something you can just listen to 
uh, why would I want to listen to guys talking about it? But I listen to it constantly. I listen to Eddie Trunk's show every day. He has like a three-hour show on there. And then I think a two-hour show somewhere else. He's on the radio five hours a day. Maybe that's why I keep running into him. Um, I listen to the Yacht Rock station sometimes. I li- sometimes I'll go to the talk stations and I'll just kind of scroll through all of them, listening to 15 seconds of each because they're usually talking about the same subject. So then they can kind of knit together one long monologue about whatever the news of the day is. Um, listen to the jazz station sometimes. My kids are in the car because somehow I think that'll be good for them. Uh, I kind of listen to them all. <laughs> it sounds like you're turning into my Uncle Bert. You're just saying you're listening. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe he would be my closest friend for all I know. Do you listen to the I police just, I scanner? I never listen to the radio. No, I don't listen to the police okay, scanner. Okay, there, there probably is some, like, you know, uh, some maybe crime-oriented station. I don't know. Um, I, uh, I just, uh, I, you know, I didn't listen to the radio ever. For whatever the years I was in New York, all 15 years, I guess. But you so listen to podcasts. Car, so you listen to podcasts for a few years, podcasts right? Podcasts are not, you know, podcasts are not that related to radio. I know it seems that way. Yeah. It's the only, it's kind of the obvious corollary, but the difference is pretty profound. Although in some ways, like these serious XM stations, they're kind of like podcasts. Like there might be a ninety-minute interview with Todd Rundgren talking about the production of Bad Out of Hell. Yeah, and it does not really go at the pace you expect a radio interview to go at. But uh, uh, I like, you know. Yeah, I'm. I kind of wish there were there were more serious channels. Like I, I can't believe that they, you know, they have the '80s channel, they have the '90s channel, they have that Boneyard one you talked about. They have Tom Petty, they have the Beatles. They've hit all these different pockets of music, and yet the 21st century they've thrown away. And I don't. I feel like enough time has passed now that the 2000s was something that it should be. Well, you know, this is. This is my wife's complaint. My wife doesn't like serious radio because she's like, I want to hear the new LCD sound system record or whatever. Where is that? And there is like a, there is, I, I think, it's sort of branded as like a college rock station, although not really. I think there's something called the Spectrum. Yeah. Where they'll play like the natural, national. I don't want to hear any of those bands. So I don't care about that. I mean, I think the, the assumption is that the people listening to serious radio are the people who are, like, old enough to buy a new car that has serious radio in it. Right. And those people are young. So it is as though the world kind of ended in the middle 90s. Right. But, I would see, I would say that was the case 10 years ago, and now it's been 10 years, so now there should be this kind of 12 to 15 years later nostalgia boom for that White Stripes Killers era. Which is now kind of an era that feels really far away, you know. The yeah, it's there is, you know, like if you look at Lizzie Goodman's book or whatever, there is a nostalgia for that period, but there is not a great nostalgia for the music that was recorded during that time. Yeah, because almost all of it was just pretty derivative of a source that's easily accessible. 
So, like, if somebody who... If, it's odd to be nostalgic for the strokes, like, be nostalgic for television. And, like, even if you love the White Stripes and you love the way Jack White plays guitar, why wouldn't you listen to Led Zeppelin or any of these things that he was mining? Where prior to this middle 90s period we're talking about, even the derivative things seemed different because the way they were delivered was different. Like 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 hair metal or sort of like new wave music. Those things weren't original ideas, but they were packaged in this way that seemed very disconnected from the source material. So it seems they seem more different than they actually are. Yeah, I wonder... I remember when uh, when I started buying music. So we're talking about early '80s, right? I'm like 13 buying eight tracks, and then that goes through to when they had the compact. You were buying eight tracks in the early '80s. I had some eight tracks. I still, I think I still have. I I might still have a couple of them. I might have saved a couple of them. But uh, But why didn't you move to? Why weren't you moving to cassettes at that period? I did. I'm just saying. I might, for whatever reason, I I had a couple eight tracks first, then went to cassettes and CDs and um but it's interesting when you think about that era there wasn't that many years of music to really go backwards and try to buy you know and so everybody my age had the same kind of we you it was almost a mortal lock that anyone in your friend group probably had if there were th- 35 go-to albums that anybody you knew probably had 12 to 15 of them and now if you're, I don't know, 15 years old in 2017, you're talking about 50 plus years of music that people have been making and that you're, you're the directions you could go with whatever you become interested in. It, it could go anywhere. You might have nothing in common with your best friend. You know, I think that would have been inconceivable in yeah. 1984. Well, and, and time is just, it's so different now. I mean, in, when we were young, you know, Led Zeppelin seemed old. Black Sabbath seemed old. Yeah. And now they still seem old, but they don't seem that much older than they did in the 80s, even though the period from then to now is much greater than the period from 1984 to from their inception. Like, I, I, I feel like I end up talking about that phenomenon a lot, but boy, is it confusing. And it's just it's a strange thing. And it makes me think that maybe this is why... Every generation of young people is annoyed by the older generations talking about aging. But the fact of the matter is, the process of aging is so goddamn weird that everyone who experiences it can't help but just sort of be just staggered by the how the weird feeling, you know? Yeah. Like, and it's so, so like, it just it's it's an unavoidable problem. Yeah, it's it's uh. I've certainly noticed it, you know, I've been watching a lot with my, with my daughter and the things that she's interested in because, you know, she's almost 13 and I remember almost being 13 and I remember what I was interested in and the, the, the different ways it can go because of YouTube and all these different things that they could just go online and find, um, and the culture that they can consume, which I don't, sometimes I wouldn't even know if it's culture it's really bizarre to me. I don't know what they're going to, I don't know what they're 20 years from now. They're going to look back at and be like, Oh man, remember, you know, like we, like for me, it was in the, uh, I think eighth grade 
that was when Thriller came out. It's like who who our age didn't have an opinion on Thriller, you know, or my age back in the day with everybody that I was in school with. But now I, I don't know what that would be for for people my daughter's age. Even if you look at something like Stranger Things, I'm not positive everyone in her class is watching that. But if Stranger Things was there in 1982, everybody in my class would have watched it. You know, we didn't have as many options. So, I, well, I, I, yeah, I mean, this is it's sort of the predictable sort of you know what's what's the upside to the monoculture? Everyone has more, you know, the, the, or the, the elimination of the monoculture. Well, everybody has more choice. You can kind of create whatever identity you want. The downside is, of course, there's going to be less shared experiences. And when you look back on your life, you tend to gravitate toward the experiences you felt that were kind of more collective. I got to say, though, you say you remember what it was like to be when you were 13. I'm starting to conclude that I don't. I mean, I remember what I liked when I was 13, but in my mind, what I think I'm doing is I'm just imagining a smaller version of me now consuming it. And that right. couldn't have been the way it was. I mean, it obviously wasn't. I, um, you know, I, I just, I, when I see, I watch younger people now and sort of see the experience they're having with things, um, it, it seems real alien to me. And I think the natural, uh, reaction people have is to be like, well, kids must be different. But I think what it is, is the aging process and the process of maturation makes you become such a different person that even if you saw your actual self again, you wouldn't recognize it. I have this fear that if I met the 13-year-old version of me, I wouldn't be able to connect him to myself now. It would seem, I would be like, this couldn't have been me. This must be someone doing a bad impersonation of me. <laughs> well, I think, you know, the one thing that really hasn't changed is sports. It's still the one thing that, you know, can unite people of all ages and everybody's going to have the same sort of, uh, not just opinions about good. Like is, is Carson Wentz the MVP? Is Carson Wentz great? Can the Eagles win the Super Bowl? Just these basic questions that we would have been asking the same questions 35 years ago, you know, and you can, you can kind of remember certain years by what would happen in sports. Back when I was a kid, you also remembered it by movies that came out and TV shows. I just think in general culture was so much more important. I remember, I can't remember if I said this on a podcast before, but um, there was an SNL sketch. I'm going to say in 90, maybe 90 or 91, when uh, Susan Day was hosting from the Partridge family. And it was it was basically Brady Bunch versus the Partridge family. Okay. And every cast member played a different member of either the Brady Bunch or the Partridge family. And every single person in my age group understood that, understood that sketch. And then probably the people eight to 10 years older than us and maybe six to seven years younger. It was one of those things. We just all got it. We, we got every joke, every inside thing, everything. And then you think about like the Brady Bunch movie came out a little bit after that. It was the same thing. It was a nostalgia movie, but it was for, cause we'd all had the same experiences with that show. And now I don't know what that, it, what that would be like 20 years from now, there's some SNL sketch where it's like blank. What would the people in that age group get? I don't even think there just can be nothing like that. Cause back with Brady bunch of Partridge film, we were on all the time. We had eight channels and everybody watched those shows and that's kind of what we knew. Now you're just doing whatever. It's weird. I don't I just don't know how it plays out. It's, it feels foreign. 
Well, I think it has. I think that probably what is happening, and this seems kind of transparent, is that the 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 kind of the pop culture aspect of politics is a bigger part of people's lives now, and certainly the deaths of people dying, just the news in general, uh, because that is something that is is shared. You don't really have a choice on that. You can't. You can pick what silo of news you want, but you can't really pick the news itself. Yeah. And I, I wonder if, if that is, you know, like Saturday Night Live used to be mostly a pop culture show with some aspects of political content. Now, I mean, I don't watch it, but the sense I get is it's mostly a political show with some aspects of culture. Yeah. It's, I, yeah, probably half and half. It definitely... um Definitely is a show that's trying those to. Seem to be the only. The, those are the only skits that seem to get traction. Outside of there was this, there was a skit a while ago about the, the Mr. Pumpkins, with Tom Hanks was some pumpkin fellow. I saw that a bunch, even though I don't watch the show. Yeah. All the other ones seem to move out. All seem to be politically based. Well, that yeah, I think part of that has to do with the cast though, because they don't really have like a just a superstar on the show anymore. Kate McKinnon's probably the closest, but they don't have those two or three force of nature performers like they used to have, like when Will Ferrell was on the show, somebody like that, where they just by themselves, by sheer talent and personality would become this viral thing. Or even like the Andy Samberg and the, the uh, Lonely Island guys and things like that. Now it seems like it's mostly the political stuff that's going to take off. And even that stuff, um, it, it's almost too close to home. I don't like the Baldwin Trump stuff. It's almost like I I have trouble like accepting Trump as a parody because he's the the actual real life version of it is such a parody. I don't know how you parody a parody, you know. We're gonna take a break to talk about Delta Airlines. My favorite airline is Delta. I am platinum medallion. Oh yeah, one of the reasons is I love the Fly Delta app. It allows me to book flights, check my sky miles, check any gate info, keep track of my bags. Well, Delta just took it up a notch. Now boarding on Delta, free messaging. You don't have to be off the grid when you're in the air. It's easy to access. All you have to do is go to the Wi-Fi portal and select free messaging. Pass on your next Delta flight. You can use iMessage, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger simply by logging into the in-flight Wi-Fi. I got to get our podcast on the Delta. That's going to be one of my goals for 2018. Hey, people at Delta, if you're listening, we want to get our podcast on Delta. You have a little podcast section and it quite honestly, needs the Bill Simmons podcast in the ringer, I think. Delta Airlines committed to constantly improving every aspect of the travel experience, including your ability to stay connected while in flight. With free messaging on Delta, you have no reason to stop the conversations you're having on the ground, not even when you get into the clouds. So we were talking about quarterbacks, and I was thinking about something you said about how um, how they, the league kind of figured out that what Kaepernick, I think it was called the pistol, it worked for a little bit. They figured that out the read option and then it became tougher for him to do this stuff. Um, and we were gravitating toward quarterbacks that are a little closer to the Tom Brady style than maybe the Aaron Rodgers style, where the guys who are in the pocket more. I think Wentz is a really good example of somebody who's tall, who can see over the line, who's got a good arm, who can move around and be elusive but isn't somebody that makes a ton of plays like with his legs. He's not like, like what we had last decade when everybody's like the new wave of quarterbacks, here they are, all these unbelievable athletes. 
And what we're finding as it goes along is those guys that take a lot of hits and a lot of punishment, um, it's just it's just too risky to have those guys to build your franchises around them. Rodgers has been hurt a couple times now, you know, and he's not cons- people don't think of him as like what the scrambling elusive guy because he's not like Michael Vick in two thousand four, but he is somebody that makes plays with his legs. So is Russell Wilson, um, somebody like Mariota who keeps getting hurt, who is somebody who can run around and do stuff. And I wonder if as football keeps evolving and the concussion protocol, all these different things. If we're if we're gonna move back toward this world where it's just like the prototypical pocket passers, and everybody's gonna be afraid of the punishment risks of these guys that can run around and do things, so it's almost like we reverted back to where we were in the Dan Marino era. What do you think? An interesting thought. I mean, part of the thing about these guys who run around, I don't know if they necessarily get hurt that much more than pocket passers, but it's just that when they do get hurt, then part of their game is just gone. Right. I mean, you know, it's like, like, uh, Brady could be pretty immobilized and still be effective. I mean, Marino is the greatest example of that. Like yeah, he, he could was, basically you know, break his patella and keep playing because what do you mean? Um, I, I'm sort of fascinated by, okay. So when Romo does games, Okay, so when Romo is the color guy, you got all this attention because the thing that Romo, I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast know what we're talking about, got all this attention because he would basically come to the line and he could essentially predict the play based on, um, like, uh, especially if a team ran like a kill system when they brought two plays to the line, he would say, like, well, they're going to they're run left or they're going to do this. Um, now, he's in a position where he's in the booth so he can really see that. It does seem as though now there is so little room for error that the difference between the handful of quarterbacks who are good and the rest who are just sort of trying to keep their job must be their ability to recognize these things. Like the speed in which that they can recognize sort of what is, you know, either, depending on how you look at it, the obvious play or the only play that's really available against this defense, like the one thing that is vulnerable. Um, it, it just seems like it's becoming more intellectually complicated. Yeah, and, uh, and, and I wonder if that. Yeah, and on top of that, like the quarterbacks, I can go up to the line and just decipher what the other team is doing, and have an answer for it in the moment. That but they advan- have to do that now. That advantage yeah. seems to be gaining. There was a great replay in the Pats Raiders game that Romo broke down of. It was when Amendola caught the pass right near the goalpost, um, but Brady went up to the line and there was pressure, and he basically saw it and he had three receivers on the left and he told them what to do. And then he looked at Amendola's side and he saw what that side was. And he made some gesture to Amendola that was basically whatever sign language they were in, which was basically like, instead of doing what I told you to do, curl around and come across the middle in the back and I'll hit you, which is what happened. Now there's probably five quarterbacks in the league who could go to the line and, and see all of that in three seconds and then do it. You know, and so when they talk about, I just keep coming back to 10 years ago when people like athletes are going to revolutionize the quarterback position. I think the defenders are just too big and too strong and too fast. And you don't want your quarterback taking those hits. And if, and if, if the people are playing that way in college, 
it's not going to lend itself to making a lot of money in the pros. I mean, I would almost like if I was a high school prospect, I wouldn't want to play that way in college. I'd want to learn how to play the traditional way because I'd want to have a long career. No, I mean, another thing that's happening here, and this has been happening for a while, but you really, really notice it now in a way that's like it was a thing that happened gradually and then suddenly or whatever. It's that the difference between the college and the pro game now, the style it's played and the way they do it is so different yeah. that there really isn't much reason to, without, with the exception of like a handful of programs, a lot of them are in the Pac-12 actually, like Stanford is like this, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe USC, something, where that, that the way the quarterback operates doesn't really have a relationship to how NFL quarterbacks operate. Um, and uh, I, they're, they're, they're in some ways more ready to play in the NFL, but in another way, they're, they're less ready because it's almost like they're changing sports. Right. Well, on top of that, this is something Mike Lombardi always talks about. The linemen are always taught to, they're only taught to block one specific way. And basically they're taught to pass block the whole time and just to hop up and try to keep the quarterback fresh for two minutes. And they're not taught all of these different ways. And he thinks that's why the biggest reason why the offensive line play in the NFL has gone down so dramatically and why, and why you, you could just, some guy could be the second pick in the draft and just be a complete bust because they have no idea if he can do block four different ways. I don't, I think, but with the concussions and, uh, I'm not even talking about like a future of the sports stuff, just in terms of how bad, how football is being played. This has been such a fascinating decade with some of the things that have changed with guys being able to go over the middle now and not worry about getting beheaded basically, you know, and the whole middle is basically open up for any quarterback who's good enough to, to throw, to throw over the middle. But at the same time, quarterbacks who are much better protected but are also now smart enough to know that anytime they take off, they just got to get down as fast as possible. There's a lot less recklessness on that end. And then with the running backs, like every, every team has four running backs in the pros now, you know, you lose three guys and then here comes the fourth guy and and then you're, you're still going. And uh, it's just a really hard league to figure out. I, I've never had less of a grasp of where things are going and quarterbacks seem like they're even, you know, they were always the most important thing, but now it seems like there's only like five or six or seven of them that are really good. And if you don't have one of them, you almost might as well not even play the season. Jacksonville is the best defense in the league. They have no chance of winning the Super Bowl. So I, I, it's a, it's a weird league to figure out. It's almost the opposite of basketball where in the NBA, there's just so much talent coming in and every team, you have so much talent that you could argue that the league should go to 32 teams in the NFL, it's the opposite. It's like, fuck, we should probably get rid of teams. They won't, but, you know, we well, don't need I mean, 32. Uh, but but that's, that's really only true for the quarterback position, though. Like, it it seems like, right now, it seems like, you know, Georgia has three guys on their team who could play running back in the NFL. Yeah. Like there's more receivers now. You know, offensive linemen, I guess this might be the other thing, but defensively, there's there's lots of players. So it really is just this one position that has, you know, really become outsized. When I moved to New York, this has been like, this is right after the, like Trent Dilfer had won the Super Bowl. And uh, the New York Times Magazine always had this issue called like the year of ideas. 
Yeah. And they had me write about, you know, the idea of the quarterback as a manager. That was like the hot idea then, an old idea now. Yeah. But then it was this new idea that like, well, you know, you know, can you succeed just having a quarterback who just manages the game? Um, and uh, I don't think anyone thinks that anymore. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think that there's anybody who'd like, well, you know, even if, you know, we can start a team and you're going to give me Fournette um, and Kareem Hunt uh, and, you know, Melvin Gordon, I get, you know, three great running backs or whatever. I still don't think that they would think to themselves, all we need is a guy to just give them the ball and sort of, you know, play the way Wisconsin plays in college. I just don't think anybody would do that. I guess Jacksonville is the closest example of that, right? That they're, that they, but even recently they had a game where like they just seem to be throwing the ball every play in the second half. So yeah, they're terrible. Um, it's getting or, it's getting hard to justify why teams run the ball at all. To be honest, well, because the completion quarter, percentages are are so high. It's because the quarterbacks yeah. are so bad. What I don't understand. So in the NBA, it's like a total talent boom, right? Where you're just having. It's almost like people have learned from the mistakes of the previous generation in a lot of different ways, and they're bet they handle themselves better off the court. They take care of their bodies better. They they throw themselves into all the all the tech stuff of, of their job, basically the dieting, the sleeping, they come in as prepared, like Jason Tatum, people, these people in the, like the class of 2017, they're like almost adults and it's bizarre, but it all makes sense. Like it's just for all these different reasons, we have more good NBA players than we, than we've ever had before. You would think that would be the case with quarterbacks. You would think like, we would have learned from different mistakes that people have made over the past 40 years. You would think that the training is better, that the mechanics, the ability to study your own mechanics, the coaching would be better, the ability to rehab from injuries, the ability to add your arm strength and make your mobility better. And all these different things that would seem to translate to this person could have been a B minus quarterback, but now we're adding all this 2017 stuff and they're an A minus quarterback. And yet we only have like eight good quarterbacks. I think it's, I think it's the weirdest thing that that the weirdest subplot of professional sports right now is that there aren't more good quarterbacks. I don't understand it. It it just must be harder. Like it just must be harder than all of these other things. Even the things that we view as hard. I mean, for many years they would always say like, well, you know, you can have a debate over, um, you know, what sport has the best athlete overall, uh, and you would never put baseball into that argument. However, the single toughest thing to do in sports is to, like, you know, hit a baseball coming at you. That was a common thing you heard people say. I I don't know if I believe that anymore. I mean, now it does seem like playing quarterback is the most difficult job for an athlete in any sport, in terms of what you need to do physically, and sort of the the the, the risk involved and the intellectual component, particularly, it uh, uh, it it, well, it just seems uh, real di- like difficult in a way that that almost contradicts everything else we think about football as a game. One thing I was thinking was the. You know, football has become so much more sophisticated, really, since Bill Walsh. So you're talking 30 years, and then you you Belichick comes in, and the Belichick generation of just studying, 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 game tape, game tape, picking apart, trying to figure out what everybody's doing, almost crossing the line in certain cases with studying 
game film and signals and things like that. But um, it, it, it might be like you might have tells as a quarterback, almost like a poker player or something. And people just know like the four throws you're good at and the four things when he comes to the line, this might happen. And maybe there, maybe there's this sophistication with defense and coaching, with breaking down quarterbacks and scouting them that, that really kind of breaks down guys who 30 years ago might've made it, you know, like maybe Blake Bortles would have been awesome in 1984. I don't know. Oh, I, I well. I mean, I kind of assume he would have been right. I yeah. mean, in 1984, people would have said Blake Bortles is the greatest athlete to have ever played the position. Oh, yeah. I mean, just if we, if we, if we literally took him, put him in a time machine, this would probably be the worst use of a time machine ever. But we build a time machine <laughs> to move Blake Bortles back to the 1983 draft class. Right. He's, then, Ken, you know, he's at least Ken O'Brien. He's like a taller Ken O'Brien. <laughs> but, yeah, I do wonder... <laughs> I wonder if like the scouting and all that stuff really breaks down dudes that might have, you know, that that were ninety percent there and that ten percent. Once it spirals out of control, you don't get it back. How many quarterbacks have we seen? They just either from injuries or loss of confidence or whatever, and they're just gone. Matt Schaub was basically a Pro Bowl or a damn close for three straight years, and he was in his twenties, and all of a sudden he lost it. It was gone. It was like you know, almost like a race car driver or something. He just could he just lost control of the wheel and that was it. Culpepper. Um, he, we've seen Randall Cunningham was good. Then he wasn't good. Then he was Jeff George was good for a bit. Then he wasn't, then he was. And it's, uh, it's definitely the most erratic okay, well, position. A, kind of, I'm going to go John McLaughlin here. Forced prediction. Yeah. Tell me what good young quarterback you think is in the most jeopardy of falling off that cliff. Mm. Somebody How, that right now we sort of perceive as being pre-talented, pretty good quarterback, build the franchise around him, but uh, that will not be the perception in 10 years. I would say the, the guy that I don't think is going to age well is Russell Wilson. I think that his style of play, and he's always kind of on the tightrope of danger half the time, and circling out of about to get crushed by three guys and a lot of the stuff's happening with his legs. And we just haven't really seen that style age. Well, eventually you take hits and you know, it could, it could either be your body starts breaking down or you get a couple concussions. Steve young is somebody that, you know, was just, he, even when he was on his way out of the league, cause he was, he was getting all the concussions physically. He was still like one of the best three athletes at that position, even in his thirties. Um, I worry, I always look at these guys more like the, uh, the injury risk potential. And I, I think Russell Wilson has the highest Roethlisberger was another one that you would have said five years ago, like, man, that guy, how many times can he get tackled by three guys? It's eventually there's going to be repercussions and that, and now he's starting to have it. The one that Wentz, who I think, I think Wentz is, is great. I Wentz would be my number one draft pick of any QB in their twenties. I think he's really, really good. And, uh, the one thing that he's, got to get out of his system is sometimes he gets reckless and you know he'll try to he'll be on the five yard line and be like I think I can score and take on three guys or he'll try to stay up as three guys are trying to bring him down and he doesn't have that Brady sense yet of kind of seeing the forest through the trees but he's he's my number one pick for the opposite question which is who's who's the safest bet I think that guy's a stud uh, the one thing I want to say about Roethlisberger you just mentioned him uh you know, uh, a few weeks ago, when uh, like 
uh, he had just played terrible, and there was all those you know guys around him, and they, and he's like, I don't know, maybe I don't got it anymore. Maybe I'm done or whatever. Yeah, it's fascinating. That kind of il- that kind of illustrates to me how, in some ways, the media has no sense of humor. <laughs> like they just they cannot recognize somebody saying something he obviously doesn't believe, and is just saying because he's like, I know everyone's thinking of this. I'm just going to say it. There is no profound meaning to him saying that. But in the week following that, there was a lot of talk like, well, if you're saying that, that kind of means it's true, or you know, and that clearly is not the issue. Like he was just playing poorly, and now he's playing okay. I, I uh, wait. Did it, it, was your perception that he was kidding when he said that? Absolutely. If you really felt that way, you would never say it offhandedly with twenty-five fucking microphones around you. That would be a profound existential thing that would truly concern you, and you would do everything in your power to somehow not give that perception. The fact that he said it, it almost proved that he didn't take it seriously. Because I never saw the clip itself. I only read the stories about it. And I thought it was really strange that he said it. But I didn't know what the context was. And he had been playing horribly. He he had been playing horribly. And he came out and he was like, okay, guys, here I am. You want to answer? I'm going to answer these questions. Throw all the questions at me. And they just kept sort of bombarding him with these questions. And he said that. You know, he said it in a really offhand way. But... I certainly did not think when I heard it that this is something he really is concerned about because I, I mean, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm in some ways projecting some kind of thing onto him or something. To me, it would just seem as though if that has got to be as a, as a, a pro quarterback, maybe your deepest fear, yeah. your whole life is built around you. Know, so that, so that if you really did feel that, that wouldn't be something you would say offhand, you know? But it was definitely taken seriously. Um, here's something else I want to ask you about, kind of unrelated, uh, actually totally unrelated. You know, in the NBA now, there was the creation of all these super teams, you know, sort of like the Thunder. Yeah. Maybe they're the clearest example, you know. Now, I feel like as a consequence, this has really confused the regular season. Because the Thunder, they're kind of struggling. I don't know. Are they at 500 now? They were 5-7, and seven, I know, a little bit ago. Um, maybe they're maybe they're eight and seven now. I'm not sure what their record is, but they're not dominant, you know. Um, but when you have three guys of that caliber on the team, are they going to be better in the playoffs? When you get to the playoffs and, and they, they cut their rotations down, and very often in the fourth quarter is just putting your best guys on the floor, will they then be very dangerous or? Does this does not does this just not kind of work in this way that it doesn't that if it doesn't work during the regular season it won't work during the playoffs either. The history of it says usually it goes badly. There's been exceptions, but for the most part, when you the throw world, yeah. the heat, the heat are the exception, I guess. But yes, yeah, but the, it does. but when the Heat did it, the guys were all in their primes, and this time around, um, Carmelo is not in his prime. Paul George. The bigger issue to me is it's it's more of a thing about when people get stuck in their ways at basketball as basketball players, and then you're putting them in this situation where they have to almost relearn this teammate slash sacrifice part of the whole thing. How are they able to do it? Like you saw with the 08 Celtics, they threw Garnett, Ray Allen, and Pierce together, but even though it, it probably shouldn't have made sense on paper, it actually did because KG was such a selfless player. 
Ray Allen had been in the league for 12, 13 years, was starting to hit a different phase of his career, didn't need to score 25 anymore. And same for Paul Pierce, who just wanted to win, and they all made it work. Um, in this case, well, and it was also it was pretty. It was pretty clear who was one, two, and three in that grouping. And I guess when you look at the Thunder, I'm not maybe. They, I mean, I just had this suspicion that what that maybe Anthony was going to react the way he reacted to being on the Olympic team. Right. In which case, he would be very comfortable being sort of uh, the third option for eighty-five to ninety percent of the game, and then at the end of the game. He might be the best option. And yeah, he's not. He's not totally I, that guy anymore. It doesn't. Well, I don't. So you think that he literally can't do it, or he's choosing not to? No, I just think he's he's not 2012 Olympic mellow anymore. I don't think he's that guy. And uh, and you know the bigger issue for me, I don't want to give up on 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 them as a contender yet because I do think we you know there's just not a, not a lot of teams that have that kind of talent but Westbrook that year he had last year where he just did everything and was playing at this speed and and the teammates were kind of like props for him it's really hard to shake out of that and I, I think he struggled and I don't know he might be a little bit injured there's been rumors that maybe he was having an issue with his knee um but he's he's been really bad for him, and it doesn't seem like he has totally figured out how to pick his spots and when to take over, when not, and he just doesn't have the same kind of mojo. And uh, it does seem as though going after that triple double thing was maybe more mentally exhaustive on him yeah. than we realize. And I think that it was something that was really important to him that he sort of imagined would be. Um, almost a defining thing, like, and it will be. I mean, um, my sure. sort of my wild card, my wild card kind of prediction going into the NBA this year was that that Westbrook averaging a triple double was going to be like Roger Bannister running the four minute mile, and suddenly everyone was going to do it. Yeah, and like Ben Simmons would average a triple double in his first year, and like Lonzo Ball would come close, and there'd be like a handful of guys. But that's not going to happen. I mean, I guess Simmons is not going to be. I think right now he's like what eighteen, nine, and eight. Well, um, but, I suspect it's at some point in his career he will average a triple double. I think. Yeah, I was um, going to say just for the record, it's happening. He will do it at some point in his career. It's it's too easy for him to get the rebounds and the assists in any given game. He is. should be able to get to ten and ten in those. He has the ball all the time, and he's a good the, rebounder. The, yeah, the rebounds come to him strangely easy because you watch him. You don't. You, you kind of you notice him. You know. Well, and also. Like, he just takes so few shots. It's just like he's not expending all that energy. Like Westbrook would take 27 shots a game. Yeah. It seems like every time I look at Ben Simmons, he went 11 for 14 or he went 9 of 13. It's like this is not – he's not wasting a lot of fuel getting the basket and getting open. He just, you know, it's and he can't even, amazing. He can't even shoot yet. He's unbelievable. I, I can't – I'm just blown away by – I did a column on Friday about the winners of the first month. And, you know, it's funny that people are throwing him and Embiid together. And Embiid's overpowering and he's amazing. But Simmons is the best player on that team. I mean, Simmons Simmons is already one of the best 15 guys in the league. And um, even watching him play against Golden State on Saturday night, it was just, it was just so exciting. Somebody, we were talking in our NBA Slack about he's the best rookie since blank. I was trying to come up with, 
who I thought he was the best. Well, since, well, since LeBron, probably, right? Well, here's the thing, though. Blake, Blake Griffin was really... I mean, Blake Griffin had a really good year. Yeah, he was year, really good. True. And, it was, and it was similar in that they both lost a year. Right. So they did have a year, you know, a year of not playing, but a year of getting physically better. Um, but I think Blake's, you know, it's definitely the best since Blake. And depending on how the whole year goes for Simmons, then you have to start going back toward the LeBron, maybe LeBron in 03. He'd have to do many, it for the whole year, how many, though. How many rebounds did Blake Griffin average as a rookie? Oh, he was that first year. He was like, I think. 20, 22 and 13 or say so he was way up there and a lot was of dunks. It, was it thir- the team was, was it, winning. Was it 13? Was it, was he actually getting four more rebounds a game than Simmons? I mean, you, this is kind of something that you job to remember this stuff, but I felt he was in double digits and rebounds, but in my mind, I would have guessed 11 and a half. Now I guess we're sort of arguing over kind of, you know, negligible things, but it's, uh, I mean, he was he was very physically yeah, I mean, explosive, I guess, and that was part of it. I mean, it seemed as, and also it seemed as though there there was no there was sort of like no ceiling. With Simmons, it does seem like there's kind of a built-in ceiling that he's going to choose to build. He's never going to try to score 25 points a game. He's never going to do like he's just going to be this like he wants to be the second best player on the team. Blake was a. Uh... 22 and a half, 12 rebounds a game, almost four assists a game that first year. Pretty good season. That's yeah, pretty good. And, uh, pretty good. But more, I mean, I was even thinking more, not just the stats part. I think what's what makes both of them really fascinating, and I keep saying the word fascinating in this podcast for me, uh, what makes both of them kind of memorable. Well, you're, 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 easily, you're easily I'm easily fascinated. I'm like a cat. Um, what made both of them memorable, I think, was more the impact. Like just that they were things we hadn't seen. Blake was this guy who was just dunking over people and grabbing alley oops, and you're watching these Clipper games. You just can't. You just you don't want to miss that one moment when he decides to dunk over the center or whatever. And it was this really unique kind of guy that we hadn't had in a while. And I, the same thing is the case with Simmons, where there's pieces of LeBron and Lamar Odom and Magic Johnson, and the, he's just all of these different things. And then on top of it has that little baby skyhook. That is such a, an old school crazy shot that nobody has anymore, and he's making it routinely. Uh, I just you know love who else him. has that shot? Who the rookie for the Lakers, Kuzma? Oh, Kuzma, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kuzma's yeah, good. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. Who, who would have thought? Um, I mean, honestly, if you ask me which rookie would I rather have for the next twelve years, Kuzma or Alonzo, I'd really have to think about it and study tape because I think Kuzma might be a safer well, he, bet for where basketball's going. <laughs> It's an interesting thing, though, because I saw that you had tweeted something like, I don't get them not playing ball in the fourth quarter. Yep. Like they got you know, they got to do this. Well, it's a complicated deal because for the Lakers, the Lakers, I just think are, you say you're using fascinating a lot. I find the Lakers to be super fascinating because you watch that team and it looks like no one's actually that good, but everyone could be great. Yeah, it's a potential so kind of, team. You know, like in, in, you know, or, or, or even, like, even like Lopez. Like Lopez can be great for six minutes. Like, just, you know, uh, they played a game against the Blazers. He was just awesome for this portion of the game. Um, but, like, okay, so for the Lakers to be great as a team, it does seem as though Ball has to be central to that. He has to be kind of running the show. It's got to be his team. Yeah. And if there's ever sort of this hypothetical world where the Lakers are in the Western Conference Final at some point, he's got to be like, like he's that. But 
they're not terrible now. And if you're going to put your best five guys on the floor at the end of the game, he's not one of them. Like, so, I mean, I, I, I feel like Luke Walton believes that they, he can make the playoffs now. And I well, he's, if don't he, think that... If know. he believes that, he's an insane person because they're not making the playoffs. I... Well, I, my my I move mean, on this is play play young guys and let them screw up. You're not making the playoffs for Lonzo not to be out there in a televised game unless he's having like a nervous breakdown. I I, I don't understand that. The whole purpose of this season for them is to develop their young guys and make them better and get them well, reps I mean, I and put say, them in positions okay, to fail all, and succeed. First of all, two things. First one's minor. I don't know what difference it makes. The game was televised. Second of all, no, it's an ESPN game. It's so, important. Well, to, to who? To Luke Walton? No, I think it's. Well, Im- why would he? Yeah. I think it was important to Lonzo. I think that was one of the oh, reasons he yeah. sucked. Yeah, I think. In the, okay. Yeah. Um. Well, that's an interesting deal. I don't. I, I feel like players of his generation are used to having you know their games filmed when they're seven. I don't think the idea, like, I think they, their expectation is that everything that they do is being watched by someone on a television somewhere. Um, I just, I don't think that Luke, I bet Luke Walton believes they can make the playoffs, and I don't think he's insane for thinking that. I think that. that he's insane. If he thinks that, he's unlikely. insane. Well, but when you watch him play against these teams, they compete with everybody. No, they compete against bad teams. They're, they can't play against good teams. They're not. They don't. They don't have it. They don't really have. Well, okay. So they can't compete with Golden State. Who's who is anyone the worst either team level that you would say? Who would you say is the worst team that the Lakers would have no shot at beating in a game? I would in, say in a meaningful game. Why? Well, first of all, in the NBA, you never know. Anybody can come close to beating anybody in a certain game, but. Well, plus there's. I just when I every time I check the standing, there's ten. There seems to be an inordinate number of teams that are two games above or two games below 500. They seem pretty packed together this year. They're not. Uh, I don't think the Lakers are very good. I think the one edge that they have is the home crowd is so grateful to have a team that they actually like again that they do seem to have an advantage at home. That they seem to get there's a real energy at those games. But that you know the Lonzo thing is a real conundrum because. You know, I, my role with this stuff is you don't have to, you don't have to do what Ben Simmons is doing as a rookie, but you need to see, you need to see flashes. You, there needs to be moments. Like this was my Jalen Brown last year is a good example. Didn't, did, 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 didn't he have a 39 point game? Who Lonzo? Yeah. I did didn't he have one? Didn't he have one massive game? I don't know if Am that, no, he had 29. I don't think he had 39. But um, but like Jalen Brown last year in the playoffs, I really needed him to have a couple moments in that postseason because if he didn't, then that's a bad sign. It's a bad sign if you're if you're going to be really good eventually someday. We would see a couple glimpses of it at some point when you're a rookie, and we saw it, and it was encouraging. And Jason yeah, Tatum's another one this year. Twenty nine. Yeah, twenty nine points. You're right. Okay. Lonzo. And it was the second game. It was the second game of the year too, and it was against Phoenix. And it was against so Phoenix, and that's the thing. Yeah. And this is why the summer league culture of people watch these summer league games now, and they think this is how the guys are going to play in the real games. Like Lonzo's got to show that he can look like a really good point guard against teams that actually know what they're doing, because the teams that actually know what they're doing, they're throwing taller guys at them, they're they're pushing them, they're pressing them, they're making them uncomfortable. 
And yeah, he I, had a he had a good game last night. Yeah, who is it 16 against? Sixteen rebounds. Who is it Denver. against? Denver. They don't play defense either. Yeah, I. Well, that's the thing. I think he might be one of those guys that if if it's a certain style of play, the other team's not playing that hard, and they're not working that hard, then he's going to look okay. Um, I still, I think that his passing is so great that I wouldn't rule him out. I just wonder: is he Ricky Rubio? Is that who he's going to end up being? Is he like? Is that Hmm, is that his ceiling as a player? I mean. I don't. It's weird because you, I, someone asked me about Ricky Rubio. I'm like, oh, he's a pretty good player, but that would yeah. be a disappointment if that was the end result. I know, but he's I think that's gonna rebound. He's going he's to rebound well for a guard. Okay. Um, I, uh, in a way that Rubio, of course, would not. Um, I don't know if people are over or underreacting to the weirdness of his shot. I don't know if well, that his shot's is, terrible. Uh, Doesn't go in. Well. I, well, no, I'm not saying the result. <laughs> I'm saying the release. But that, that's you not know? great either. Yeah, he's gonna. Well, have... the release is worse than the. It's like, but I, I don't, I don't think they're gonna change it. I don't think that's the way people think now. I think that I, I think the idea is everybody is John Wooden with Keith Wilkes now. The thinking is that if a guy has a weird shot, yeah, you just you gotta let him try to do it because it's it's just too late. Um, like uh, or like trying to you know the, the trying to change a guy's free throw form now. I know that's been going on. That seems like uh, isn't it funny I though? No, isn't it funny that with the NBA and I think it's one of the reasons it's starting to feel like it's just more relevant, even if the ratings don't reflect it yet. Like the Steelers Titans was four times what Warriors Boston was on Thursday. But we talk about the players in the NBA more. We argue about their faults. We pick them apart. We're all like scouts. Like nobody, nobody has like a twenty-minute Le'Veon Bell conversation. I don't know why that is, but well, I th- I mean, I think I know why that is. I mean, like like this is a cliche, but the people say like you know, guys who love baseball tell you they love baseball because they understand it, and people who love football love football and admit they don't understand it at all. Yeah. And that's really true. The more you, the more you get into football, the more you realize it is an impossible sport to 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 understand as a casual observer. It's just it's, there's too much happening, and there's it's too complicated. Basketball is somewhere in between where it it the guy is so visible, and the thing that they're doing is something that. Many basketball players have done on some level have played right. you know at some level in their life they've played basketball so it doesn't it, it gives people a degree of authority to talk about it I uh, you might I feel at times be going or not just you really a lot of people who kind of cover sports now I think that there might be a little too we're going a little too far with this idea that. Football is losing its popularity, and everything else coming up behind and passing it. I, I agree with you. I, I, no, I'm, I, I, I 100% it, it, agree. It's more like I want it to happen than it's actually happening. But I, you do. You definitely do want I it do. to happen. I do and want I, it to like happen. A, uh, like the, okay, there. Do you? I'm sure you read this big story about uh, about Goodell and Jerry Jones, right? The one that was in ESPN, the magazine. Yeah. Uh, the thing. You know, the, the you know. Okay, so at one point they talk about that. You know. The NFL 
kind of got some uh, some sort of uh, public relations expert to come in and talk to the owners. And, and his thing was like, okay, here are all the sports in America and their popularity. The NFL is on top. And, you know, some other sports like, you know, soccer are sort of climbing. And then basketball's success is eroding. And then the, some apparently one of the owners was like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? <laughs> right. to, like, not watch what's going on in the world. <laughs> right. um, but what I, I think what that guy's what that guy was trying to do, not necessarily on his own, maybe with a push from the league office, but what he was saying is that even when you know, even when it's at its worst point, I mean, this has been the worst year for professional football I can ever remember. If we're going to believe in the concept of luck, outside of the concussion issue, and then this completely unforeseen national anthem issue, and then every significant player being injured. It's just, it's real weird, right? So even in this, and the games haven't been that good. I mean, I watched the college game on Saturday and the program on Sunday, and it's just it's so much better on Saturday. It's not even comparable, <laughs> but yet I'm still watching the NFL. Yeah. And even at kind of nadir point, it seems as though if I'm going to have a conversation in an airport with a guy at the bar at TGI Friday's, while we're staring at watching whatever on ESPN2, the likelihood that we can talk about pro football still laps everything. And I think what this guy was suggesting, this kind of this PR hack guy, was that NBA is sort of doing everything it can to promote its players and sort of promote the idea of what it kind of represents in sort of this abstract way. Um, and they still can't get around the fact that nobody wants to watch the second and third quarter of these games. But they want to see the beginning, and then they want to check it out at the end, but they just can't get over the fact that the game, at times, much like baseball, has this dull period. And football just doesn't have that as much. This is why part of the reason I think it's crazy that the NFL wants to expand to 18 games. It's just crazy because, obviously, these guys have enough health problems as it is. But the one thing that football has over every other sport is that the games seem more meaningful because there's less of them. And that, you know, it's like you're there, there isn't many throwaway NFL games. There are no throwaway college games. Yeah. So when you watch it, you feel like you, you know, but it, it's just because, you know, people get upset by, like, what's on Thursday night? Oh, it's a terrible game. It's Dolphins again or whatever. It's like, oh, Monday's awful. Um, it's because the expectation is that when you watch a football game, it probably will be pretty good because that's how people will When you and I began watching football, probably people who listen to this hate when we do this, but it's just I feel like compelled to do it. When we were watching pro football when we were young, there were three games. Okay, There was the game you watched the Patriots, and I watched the Vikings. They were the local team, so people were invested just because of the locality. And it was typically whatever those networks saw as the biggest game, usually the Cowboys. And then the Monday night game, which was often an interconference game and seems important just because it was the only game everyone knew everyone was watching. Yeah. So the likelihood that you would watch these three games and at least you were almost definitely guaranteed that you were going to care about two of them. You know, but now there's many games on that put people in this position where they got to generate a reason to care. So if the teams aren't very good, if, it, you know, it's like, well, they're almost mad at the NFL. Like, I see people I do sort think, of angry at the, at the idea. 
I think the red zone hurts it too because the red zone is just something's happening all the time, but real football is not working that way. You know, it's like, oh, here's another play. Hey, here's another great play. And then it makes it seem like the average football game isn't as exciting, but really. Uh, well, particularly since the red zone has no commercials. Yeah, just it not, mean, it's so nonstop. Really, so, so, you know, the only time I stop watching the red zone when it's on is when every game in the country is bad and no one's in, in the actual red zone. Then you kind of look down or get up or whatever. You yeah. know? I, when, you, when you watch the Thursday game, I feel like I'm checking my phone too much against my will because what am I supposed to do? I'm not going to watch the commercials. One more break to talk about Simply Safe. The holidays can be a crazy time. You want to make sure your home's protected through all of it. That's why Simply Safe Home Security is having a massive Black Friday sale. $200 off their special holiday security system. It's a bestseller. And if you want to protect your family, this should be how you do it. Simply Safe has made everything about security effortless for you. You barely have to lift a finger, just order it online. And it's delivered right to your door with free shipping. Setup is so easy. It takes less than an hour. A 10 year old can do it. Best of all, Simply Safe has no long term contract, no pushy sales guys, no hidden fees. You're protecting your whole house for an honest and fair price, just $15 a month for the best in the industry 24 7 alarm monitoring, and you're never locked in. Go right now. Get $200 off Simply Safe at simplysafebs.com. That's Simply Safe with two eyes. Simplysafebs.com. These systems will fly off the shelves. Offer ends soon. Simply Safe with two eyes. Simplysafebs.com. While we're here, let's talk about. My bookie, the holidays are around the corner. That means plenty of parties, gifts, and spending. It also means there's lots of football, basketball, and hockey games you can score big on every day. Here's an idea. Go to mybookie.ag. They've been in this business for years. Their reputation rock solid. They do 50% cash bonuses, so off the bat, you're making money for doing nothing. They have the fastest payouts, two business days. They have in-game live betting, the most rewarding player perks in the business, and an all-new mobile site that makes wagering on the go a breeze. In-game live betting. Lay down some cash. Try to win big today. Join now and MyBookie will match your deposit with up to a 50% bonus. Just visit MyBookie.ag. Use the promo code Bill Simmons to activate the offer. You play, you win, you get paid. Quickly, the Jim Carrey doc on Netflix right now. You were, you loved it or you were ambivalent about it or you're glad you watched it? Give me your quick take. I was definitely glad I watched it. It was, um, it, it's, uh, I mean, I don't know. This is kind of a weird reason to to say something is interesting. But, you know, in the world, there are a lot of people who are full of shit, but nobody can compete with the comedic actor trying to take himself seriously. <laughs> Jim Carrey talking about his desire to become Andy Kaufman yeah. and then also needing to method act and do all this stuff. And then kind of doubled by the fact that his, his sort of now sort of self-actualized position that this was all a waste of time and that this was, you know, that, that this thing that he did that was so important to him is just an attempt to sort of escape from life. It is very strange to both see the old footage and to hear him talk this way. And, you know, I mean, he's obviously someone who's thought a lot about his life, but he's producing this. So, so he, there's what he, what's in there is what he wants to get across. Yeah. But there's like a real telling moment in this thing where he was like, well, initially they wanted to film me, you know, uh, you know, film me 
you know, when we, when we weren't on screen and stuff, to kind of make like an electronic press kit. And I said, no, I want to get these real documentarians to follow me. And then the, you know, the studio wouldn't release it because they didn't want me to seem like an asshole, I think he says. But man, does he seem like an asshole in these, <laughs> in these clips. And it's just, uh, it's just very, like, I was, I thought that I'd probably start watching it and, and maybe I would be like, ah, this is just something. But I, I, I was, I was pretty intrigued by the entire thing. So, and one of my favorite really things increased my desire to talk to Jim Carrey, which I would have never thought before. Oh, wow. I've never really been a fan of him as, uh, I mean, I, I liked Eternal Sunshine. I thought the Truman Show was good. I was, I mean, that was an idea I was really into at the time. Um, but I don't, I mean, I didn't care about, you know, Ace Ventura. I've never seen, I've never seen The Mask. I've never seen some of these movies. But there are things about him now that I just, I feel like someone needs to ask him. So it sounds like in a world where all celebrities are completely self-aware at all times that Jim Carrey may be not that self-aware in this documentary. Well, I think that he perceives himself as being the extra level of self-aware. But he's actually like, not. He's actually, like, self-aware as a human. Yeah. I mean, the, the self-awareness that, like, a lot of celebrities lack is, um, well, like, okay, uh, uh, I just read that Jan Wenner uh, biography. Yeah, okay? I wanted to ask him and about that. A, that was the next yeah, question. And that's a, yeah, that, I mean, that's like a, that's a, a, you know, that's another thing that's, interesting for all these reasons like i would love to i mean the i i've never met the author joe hagan i we have friends in common but there's things i'd like to ask him about because this book is awesome i i love this book but it's so interesting how he has framed everything like there are quotes in this book from jagger and from mccartney and stuff that i think if framed in a different way would come across as sort of charming, or this is how friends talk about old friends. But the way it comes across is Mick Jagger essentially saying, I only pretended to like this guy. I just used him. He's a jerk. Like, every time. That's sort of like the coded wow. message in almost every quote that comes across. Um, and the lack of self-awareness on Jan Wenner's part seems to be that he could not imagine that Mick Jagger or Paul McCartney or any of his old employees would say anything about him Except that he's just a great man who completely invented the culture and reinvented the culture and that and changed sort of rock culture and that there was just no way anybody would perceive their relationship um, in any in, in any sort of negative sense. So the lack of awareness he has is about his perception. Jim Carrey does not seem at all unaware of how he is perceived. He has a high degree of self awareness about hmm. what he, you know, how he's perceived. The awareness that he seems to be fixated on is the idea that he is now an actual self-aware human, that he fully understands why he exists and sort of the hopelessness of that position and, like, this very kind of this deep idea of how everything about his career was an attempt to escape from... And a kind of unhappiness that is inherent to being a person, okay? Um, but the way he expresses it is just bizarre and idiotic at times, and that's the thing. It's like I don't, I don't think that, that he is uh, like a, a person confused about who he is, I, but I do think that he has 
some confusion over what that means, like what it means to be him. Although, to be fair, I mean, I'm confused about that too for myself. Like, I just, I, I think that's a, yeah. a, a pretty reasonable thing to be befuddled by. Uh, it's just odd to hear someone look at a camera and directly express those ideas. Mindhunter, you like? Do you want to talk about that really quick or no? Yeah, I've been watching Mindhunter a little bit, although I have been uh, sort of negatively inf- impacted by a tweet from Errol Morris. I started watching Mindhunter, and I was like, oh, man, David Fincher's great. This is kind of, and there's some things about it. There's a few people in this who are bad actors, but there are a few people who are awesome actors. Um, but then Errol Morris tweets, sorry, folks, Mindhunter got it wrong. And Errol Morris has spent a lot of time thinking about sociopaths mm. and the psychology of serial killers. And as a consequence, I have to say, I sort of trust him more than I trust David Pincher, who I think has uh, an interest in, uh, I don't know, just an, 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 like my wife was actually the person who brought this up to me. She was like, you know, when you look at David Fincher's career and his filmography, it's always sort of based around this idea that a woman has wronged him. And oh. a woman has wronged him and, has, and, has, and, and, and that there is sort of a, uh, like a perversity that comes from the feeling that you were humiliated by a woman. And, sort of placed into the political context of now, I thought this is a pretty this is a pretty good idea. It's a pretty good you know, it's just pretty good insight she had. Now, I don't know David Fincher. I'm guessing he would you know, I don't know. I don't know what he would react. I don't know if he'd disagree or agree. Interesting. I still haven't watched it. It's on my list. Oh it's it's real it's well shot. It's yeah. kind of I mean, certainly you'll be into it because it's just there's certain things about it yeah. that uh, that just that guys like us are going to be into. What's a little strange about it is it's set in the 70s, but it's kind of pushed through the lens of sort of woke America. Right. So it's like all of these things in the 70s where in, we're saying, you know, like in Mad Men or whatever, it's just like, well, these things happened and because that was the time. Guys acted like that because that was the time, and that's just part of the story. This is always like, well, these things happen, and then the characters in real time sort of need to discuss what this really means. And like the the main character, the guy from Looking, he has a girlfriend in this uh, in this series, and every time he sort of brings something up, she kind of makes him reconsider this with a certain kind of logic that not only didn't appear in 1977, like didn't exist in 2007. Like, like, like a, a certain kind of awareness about what these things are supposed to symbolize and reflect that has really not become part of the culture until like two years ago. Um, but I, I, I'm liking it. I'm, I'm still enjoying it. You know? um, we never talked after the Tom Petty thing. I thought what was interesting about Tom Petty is I hadn't really thought about him or considered him in a while. And he was just kind of there and just assumed he was indestructible. But then when he died, I was shocked, first of all, by how bummed out I was about it. And then how much Tom Petty music I listened to for over the next few weeks after that. And really kind of did, took for granted how big of a part of 
my life he had been in different stretches over the years. But that was one part. And then the other part was I was shocked by how high of an approval rating he had compared to normal celebrities. It just seemed like everybody kind of liked him and was in. And, and it wasn't just people from my generation slash your generation, but also like people under 30 seemed to like him. And it was, it was just a way more unique and special career than I kind of realized. But I'm sure you had already realized that. Is that, or did you not realize it? Well, you know, it's interesting. Mark Marin made a stand-up special while Tom Petty was still alive. And there is a joke in this stand-up special about how Tom Petty is like the most unifying aspect in the culture, which is an interesting thing to have made in the wake of him dying and this yeah. happening. Like, he basically was saying, like, how do you talk to people who have completely different political views? Or, you know, Oh, you can talk about Tom Petty or whatever. True. Um, so I guess that there was some recognition that Tom Petty... Well, see, Tom Petty was such a likable person, and that's, that's such a big part of this. I mean, even compared to somebody who, like, uh, oh, somebody who is clearly more, you know, musically important, Lou Reed, for example. Yeah. Lou Reed dies, and his musical footprint is much bigger, but you could hate Lou Reed. Like, you could say, like, I hate this guy, I don't like the way what he did with art. He's pretentious. I don't like the way he yeah. acts to people. Yes. You know, it would be hard to do that with Tom Petty. Like just, he's just seemed like a, like just a real nice guy. I mean, like, and, and uh, sort of time had no bearing. It's like, you know, Roy Orbison and Dylan and George Harrison liked him, but so did, you know, the strokes basically ripped him off and got people. Like everyone sort of likes it. Um, my personal opinion of Tom Petty, I was never a big Mammoth fan. I always thought that he was an interesting person in that he became a legend by being better than okay for a really long time. Mm. Like, he had a very long career, and I don't know if, like, you know, after he died, this so often happens, you know, like, you go, oh, I'm going to go listen to Dan the Torpedoes now or whatever. It's like, I, uh, I mean, he made many good records, like like Wildflowers, I think is good record, but I, I, um, uh, he never meant much to me, but that's just like a, that's like a personal thing. Although it was odd when this happens, I'd totally forgotten about this is like, I guess I wrote about him a little bit in Fargo Rock City. I had no, I had no memory of this at all. <laughs> but now when something like this happens, people tweet that section to you. Yeah. Um, what I did, it's very, I, it's just a strange thing. Like I had because uh, I, I basically talked about him in relationship to both Izzy Stradlin and John Mellencamp, and I just sort of discussed why he was popular among metal kids, despite, you know, obviously having no metal aspects. Um, I'd totally forgotten about that. So I guess I had been thinking about him for a while, but, you know. I was struck when I, I think one of the reasons people liked him is that he wasn't that complicated. You go through his music I had made I had made this petty playlist a while ago. I make playlists and like if I'm driving somewhere for an hour and a half, I'll just usually listen to a bunch of songs from one person. And you go through the petty songs and all of them are really kind of simple. And I think that's what, what made them so charming. It's like, now I'm free falling. Here comes my girl. Don't do me like that. Even the losers get lucky sometimes. You got lucky when I found you. Don't come around here no more. It's like very, very basic, simple messages, but done in a really elaborate, fun way. And I, I think 
it, it, there wasn't anything to be against, you know, nobody would be like, fuck that guy. Fuck that Tom Petty. I'm sick of him. You know, it just, yeah, just wasn't well, like you that. Know, he was, he was, he was somebody who just, he made rock music. Yeah. It wasn't that he was like, that's what, that was the thing he did. Like for his whole career, he was like, well, I'm a rock musician working in the genre of rock and I make these rock songs. Somebody pointed out that in almost every one of his songs, the chorus is always exactly four lines. Mm. Uh, and then sometimes, well, sometimes there's a fifth line, but the fifth line is always a repetition of like the first line. So it's like there was, th- th- there was a, a certain modality to how he did this, that he was like, you know, um, and uh, I mean, one thing I think that, that kept him from becoming polarizing is, you know, when he had issues, it was like he had issues with the record label or whatever, he had issues yeah. with his wife, but he never seemed to have an issue with what I do artistically, like there was not some point where he was like, I need to really make, I need to make a, a, a like, like a concept record that sort of illustrates, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think you could probably look at some of his records as, as concept albums if you wanted to, but it's like, he was never pushing that. Yeah. He was never, he never tried to be, um, like he was always trying to be popular, but there was never some point where he was like, well, now, I need to, you know, like I make popular music, but I need to be sort of, I need to have the song of the year. I need to have this, this thing that sort of moves me into this next stratosphere. I thought it was cool that at one point he was like, oh, I used to be in this old band Mud Crutch. No, let's get them back together again. Give those guys something. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, they they must have spent the last 25 years of their life watching me become famous. And they're like, ah, oh, we could have done that. And he's like, oh, I'll make you famous for six weeks. So um, I, I was in the bookstore because my kids, I took my, you, your, your kids aren't old enough yet, but I took my daughter and a friend of hers to the Grove a couple weeks ago. And once they get there, they just want to ditch you for two hours. So I'm killing all this time there. And I'm in the bookstore and I went in the- To the, to the Grove? To the Grove. I'm in the bookstore. They have a giant bookstore there. Okay. And- uh yeah. And they have a really good like art section because it's LA, like just movie books and TV books and music books. And there's always some book that I didn't know existed. So I go up there and there's an Ed Burns autobiography that I had no idea existed. Do you know Ed Burns wrote an autobiography? I did not. Yeah. There you go. So I'm like, I'm, I'm going to power read this Ed Burns autobiography. I guarantee I'll learn four things from it. I'm going to speed read this in a half hour. So I'm zooming through it and I get to the part when, uh, when he's making, she's the one, which I'm sure you remember the brothers McMullen follow up. That mm-hmm. was basically mm-hmm. just brothers mm-hmm. McMullen with a better cast. And, uh, and he gets to the part with Tom Petty. Cause if you remember the entire movie is Tom Petty songs. So they meets with Tom Petty and Tom Petty's like, here's this song. You can have this for the, for the movie. And then he's like, and here's another one. And then Ed Burns goes back to him and says, hey, what if you just did a whole album of Tom Petty songs? I'll just make that the soundtrack. And Tom Petty's like, yeah, cool, let's do it. And just just was like all in. And I don't know what other artists would have done that. Would have just been like, all right, random indie filmmaker who's made one movie. I'd love to contribute an entire soundtrack. But I, I just think that seems like the kind of guy Tom Petty was. I'm, I'm not even saying he's generous. I just think he kind of rolled with the moment and it was a cool idea. Well, and he it, was it like, also, yeah, fuck it. I'll do it. It also sort of just illustrates 
how naturally prolific he was in that when someone comes to him and says, well, we make a whole album where that's the entire movie. The movie and the album are interchangeable. The only reality in this movie is your music or whatever. And his natural reaction is like, well, what's the movie about? What are these songs are about? How can I do this? He's like, oh, sure. I yeah. can do that. I can I'm write in. 12 songs. I mean, like, I can just do it. I can just do it. Like, um, Pretty interesting. You know, that there's... It is. Well, you know, it did make me think it's a strategy that I'm surprised more filmmakers haven't done. Where you go to one artist and be like, here's the idea for it. Like, it's kind of amazing. The Counting Crows never were involved in a rom-com where they supplied all the music for it. You know, like you would think it would almost be like a an artistic slash um, financial kind of play. I mean, it's a it's a pretty big gamble. I mean, like the graduate is like that. The graduate yeah. is all Simon Garfunkel. Okay, so you have to feel as a filmmaker that this music is going to age in a way that's not going to alter the meaning of the film. You know, well, it's funny I mean, you it's, mentioned that though. It, the graduate that was Ed Burns's pitch to Tom Petty. It'll be like The Graduate. Yeah. I mean, that's what people were feeling with Ed Burns in the mid-90s. Hey, man, this could be your graduate, Tom Petty. And Tom Petty was like, yeah, all right, dude. Do you have any weed? Um, the, uh, the, the Stephen King movie where the machines come alive, yeah. that's all ACDC music. That was the Who Made Who record, where they used some of the you know, older ACDC songs, and I had a couple. There are a few examples of that I guess um, uh, it would seem like uh, it would seem like every eight or nine years there would have been an example but who knows anyway I thought that was interesting All well, right. particular, particularly now though because it's like albums don't sell that much Yeah. so the idea that you could make a record for a movie the, the success of the movie could actually allow you to sell a record in a time when that just doesn't happen I think bands now make make music based on what might make a good Apple commercial. I think they sit in the thing and they're like, hey, you know, there's certain sounds that just make sense if it's an Apple commercial or a Beats commercial or something. And I, I'm convinced that bands go into the studio and try to figure out songs that they can just immediately sell. I think that there was a, like a pejorative belief in the 1980s that somebody would look at Duran Duran and they would say, this song on their record was just a reason to make this specific video. And, you know, and that was seen as somehow yeah. less authentic because, you know, but I mean, that's, the, that's what it is now. It just, it's like, that's the, the only way that you can get music to people who don't already want to hear it. Like who are already kind of invested is to get them in a situation. And, and the trouble is people barely watch commercials anymore. Right. So you almost got to have it be in a sporting event or like an award show. It's a, uh, it's weird. I mean, now it's like we're just back. You make you make music, you make albums, tour. That's the whole reason. Like you know, and that was not the way it was in the seventies and eighties. Chuck Klosterman, let's not try to make it six more months before we do a podcast. Plug your uh, plug your book for the holidays. Oh well, uh, my anthology, Chuck Klosterman Ten, which actually looks like Chuck Klosterman X, which yeah. is just a black book. But uh, yeah, sure, that would be what a wonderful wonderful holiday gift it would make oh my god i can't imagine someone's ecstasy upon waking up mm. christmas morning put nice fits in the stocking book of, 
And we're going to cut. Uh, could it fit in the stocking? I don't know if it could fit in the stocking. Maybe big, one of those the, big uh, stockings. In the sled. <laughs> and then this winter, we are going to do um, a two-city podcast tour um, where we're going to come to Seattle and do a basketball slash Save the Sonics podcast. That's happening. I don't know when the date is, but it's going to happen. And then we're going to come to Portland with you and we're going to make you come out and we're going to do a giant rewatchables podcast on a movie that we'll have to figure out what we're the most fired up about in front of a live okay, audience. Okay. Well, that's happening. This is where I am. Yeah. Okay. If you have, if you want to have uh, if you have suggestions out there, people in Portland for rewatchables podcast, you'd want to hear us do, um, feel free to send a, send those to us. Uh, Chuck Klosterman, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. You got it. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks again to Simply Safe. Don't forget about their special Black Friday sale. Protect your whole house for an honest and fair price. Just $15 a month for best in industry, 24-7 alarm monitoring. You're never locked in. Go right now. Get $200 off at SimplySafeBS.com. That's Simply Safe with two eyes. No long-term contracts. These systems will fly off the shelves. Offer end soon. Again, Simply Safe with two eyes. Go now. SimplySafeBS.com. Thanks again to Delta. Now boarding on Delta. Free messaging. You don't have to be off the grid when you're in the air. You can use iMessage, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger simply by logging into the in-flight Wi-Fi and selecting free messaging. Delta Airlines committed to constantly improving every aspect of the travel experience, including your ability to stay connected while in-flight. Free messaging on Delta. What's better than that? You will get one more podcast from us on Friday. It's a little bit of a surprise. I'll, 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 I'll leave you in suspense. Enjoy Thanksgiving. Have a good time watching football. Try not to get in any stupid conversations with your old relatives. It's not worth it. Just trust me. Until then. <laughs>